0: Well, hey, if you weren't here last Sunday, I need to bring you into the loop on something quickly so that you have a heads up, okay? Uh, Starting next Sunday, I am going to take an extended break from preaching. I'm actually going to take off the first four Sundays in July, and then I'll be back on the fifth Sunday, which is July 30th. But this is a decision that I've talked with our elders about, and they're all in support of it, along with the reasons behind it. And so, in case again you haven't heard the reasons, let me just fill you in. All right. Uh, first off, right out of the gate, I need you to know that this is a proactive, not a reactive decision. So, like, my life's not falling apart. My family is good. Uh, there's nothing on going on in the backstage of life that would necessitate this. Uh, instead, I'm planning to get away with my family for a couple weeks and just to rest and take a vacation. And then I'm going to use the rest of the time to pray, think, and and plan forward in regards to the dreams and the visions we believe God's given us as a church for this next season of ministry. And so in light of that, uh, we're going to bring in some guest speakers all month. Our elders decided it would be beneficial for the church to take off four weeks from the book of Mark and to bring some guys in for you to hear from. So let me tell you about these guys really quickly, all right? Next Sunday, July 2nd, my good friend Paul Richardson is going to be in the house Paul is one of the pastors at Westridge Church in Dallas, Georgia, which was the church that helped start our church years ago, and he's also the executive director of Engage Burkina. That's the mission organization we work with to accomplish ministry in West Africa. Uh, The next Sunday, Tommy Adams, my good friend that I've known since college, is going to be in the house. Uh, Tommy and I did ministry in Carrollton, Georgia back in the day. And then in the mid-2000s, we did ministry in Miami, Florida together. Uh, Tommy started a brand new church, Grace City Church, in the West Georgia area earlier this year. And uh, his church is actually part of the church planting network that we started uh, sometime in 2016. I don't remember when it got off the ground, but it's off the ground and and rocking and rolling. The next Sunday, Rob Wilton, my buddy from New Orleans, is going to be here. Uh, He pastors Vintage Church in New Orleans, Louisiana, where he is also the chaplain of the New Orleans Saints. All right, good. Hey, no, stop that. Don't do that. We got a lot of Saints fans at 830 for some reason, and I had to shut them down quickly, all right? Uh, Even though he's a Saints guy, we're going to bring him in because we here at Crosspoint believe that the grace of God covers even Saints fans. So he's going to come and preach, and you guys are going to love Rob, just a great guy. And then finally, really stoked about this, on the 23rd of July, a friend of Crosspoint's, Chip Judd, is going to be with us. Uh, I would say if you're someone in the room who's trying to Figure out this whole marriage thing. And I think if you're married, you're trying to figure out this marriage thing, right? Like, we never stop trying to figure it out. You need to be here, especially on that week. Uh, Chip is the pastor of campus ministries at Seacoast Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And he's also served as a marriage and family counselor for over 30 years. This guy is brilliant. Back in the fall, we actually had him do a marriage retreat for our staff and spouses. And it was so impactful that we reached out and just said, hey, Chip, will you come and share with our church some of what you shared with us? And so that's the month of July, all right? Let me just say this, and then we'll move on. Um, Just because I'm going to be gone for four weeks doesn't mean you should be gone for four weeks, right? Are you with me? I said this last Sunday. I'll say it again. I've worked really hard to make sure that you are well fed while I'm away. And so I want you to make sure that you're here, number one, to support and honor these guys as our guests. It's really important that we do that. But number two, and more importantly, because I believe God's going to use these men to impact your lives in great, great ways. All right? So that's July. I'll look forward to seeing you at the end of the month. But uh, I'll be praying for you while I'm gone and just would ask that you do the same for me. Yeah? All right. Awesome. Well, hey, if you have a Bible or a device with an app... Uh, Some kind of Bible app. You can grab those things. Let's go to Mark chapter 7 together. Mark chapter 7. As you're finding your way there, I have a confession to make. Uh, Going into this past week, I wasn't too excited about preaching on the stories that we're getting into today. Is that okay to confess? Like some of you might be judging me for that right now, so let me explain myself, okay? Uh, In these stories, we find Jesus doing yet again what we've seen him do all throughout the book of Mark. He performs another demonic exorcism and he heals another person in desperate need of healing. And so when I read those stories initially, I thought to myself, all right, what else am I supposed to say about this same stuff that we've already covered? How do I teach these stories any differently from the ones we've already been in, right? I mean, I feel like we've said a lot about Jesus's authority up until this point over both the physical and spiritual world, so I really wrestle with that. So on Tuesday morning, despite my lack of excitement... I sat down and I decided to read what some other pastors and commentators had to say about these stories. And about two minutes into reading, God made it very, very clear to me where we needed to go today. And that's when I got excited. I got excited because I know several of you in the room desperately need this message. Some of you have told me personally that you need it. Uh, Others in the room have, have voiced it by writing it on a prayer card. And just so you know, I read the prayer requests that come in every single week, as do our staff, as do our elders, and we are constantly praying for you. So please continue to take advantage of those prayer cards that are around you and write your needs on them because we're actually praying, okay? Uh, I also believe that there are others in the room who desperately need this message, yet you've never voiced it to anyone. Like nobody knows what's going on in your life right now except you and God. And so you might be wondering, well, James, what in the world are we talking about? Well, today we're going to talk about how to respond rightly when your faith is challenged greatly. How to respond rightly when your faith is challenged greatly. So in other words, what in the world do we do when we face certain things in life that leave us discouraged, defeated, and wanting to give up? Listen, if that's where you are today, I really want you to lean in and listen Because I believe God through his word and by his spirit wants to strengthen you today. I also believe that God wants to set some of you free before you leave from those challenges. I'd also say that's not where you are today. Like if you walked in and your faith is strong and everything in life is fine. I really want you to lean in today. Because at some point, I can promise you this. At some point, your faith will be challenged. And when it happens, you're going to need these truths that we're about to talk about to serve as anchors for your soul in those moments and seasons. And so with that said, let's dive in and get to work, all right? Here we go. Mark 7. We'll pick up and start reading in verse 24. Mark says this, And from there Jesus arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, this is significant, so just mark it and we'll come back to it, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs." But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And and he said back to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. All right, a lot of strange stuff happening in those verses. All right, so let's unpack it together. In verse 24, right out of the gate, Mark sets the scene for us. And he tells us that Jesus has traveled some 40 miles outside of Capernaum, which served as his home base for ministry, and he has now entered Gentile territory, the territory of Tyre and Sidon. So in other words, he took a trip out of the land of the Jews, and he traveled into the land of the non-Jewish pagans. And his whole purpose for going was to get away, right? He had done so much ministry up until this point. He was probably exhausted, needed to rest, needed to recover, so he does what a lot of us do when we need a vacation, and he goes far, far away from home. The problem was the plan didn't work, right? Mark says that Jesus got there, yet he could not be hidden. Somehow, even these Gentile people who lived far outside the area where Jesus did most of his ministry, they had heard about him and his ability to perform miracles, and one of the people that heard about him was this woman we just saw in the text, a woman facing some major faith challenges. There were some initial challenges that should have kept her from approaching Jesus, yet she approached him anyway. And then there were some in the moment challenges that should have caused her to walk away from Jesus, yet she stayed. And what I want to do is dig into the details of these challenges along with her responses to them, because I believe we have a lot to learn from her and how to respond rightly when our faith is challenged greatly. So here we go. Initial faith challenges. If you're taking notes, here's some stuff to write down. Number one, Mark tells us that her first challenge was her nationality. Her nationality. As he points out, uh, she was Syrophoenician by birth. Uh, she was born in a region known as Syrian Phoenicia, which today is modern-day Lebanon. And that may not sound like a big, de- a big deal to you, but it was a huge deal back then because that meant, as Mark says, she was a Gentile. Jews viewed Gentiles as unclean people. All right, last couple of weeks, we've talked about unclean food, if you've been here, and how the Jewish people viewed certain foods. Today, we're talking about people and how the Jews viewed certain people as unclean. That meant good Jews didn't get too close to Gentiles. And it also meant Gentiles didn't get too close to Jews, especially Jews like Jesus, who were rabbis. Her second challenge was her gender. Did you guys notice in the passage that she was a woman? Yeah, some of you women are upset and offended by that comment, but I need you to know this was a different culture and a different time. Right? Women in this society were, for the most part, treated as second class citizens. Men dominated this culture in this day and age. And so one of the social customs was this a woman wasn't even supposed to talk to a man in public she wasn't married to. Like ever. Which was even truer in the case of a Gentile woman talking to a Jewish man. Her third challenge was her daughter. Mark says that her daughter was possessed by a demon, or as he calls it, an unclean spirit. Uh, you heard me talk a few moments ago about Burkina Faso, a little country in West Africa where our church does a lot of work. And in West Africa, there are still many, many stories of demon-possessed people. It's a lot more common than it is here today. And some of the stories that we've heard have been about demon-possessed children. In certain cases, those children are either tied up or chained up and left in a room somewhere. And then their parents are often avoided because in their villages, those people and that family are considered to be spiritually cursed. Listen, I need you to know during biblical times, the mindset was very much the same. If you or your child was possessed by a demon... People concluded, well, for some reason you have been cut off from God, and therefore you deserve to be avoided. You were an unclean person because of what God let happen to you. Now, look back up here and think about this with me, all right? Here's this woman who's a Gentile, and her daughter's demon-possessed. She had no good reason to approach Jesus. Culturally, socially, and spiritually, the odds were stacked against her. Like There was nothing about her, absolutely nothing that qualified her to do what she did, yet she did it anyway, which brings me to my first point. Listen, when your faith is being challenged in some way, and those challenges try to tell you that there's no good reason to approach Jesus, the first thing you do is this, you approach him boldly. You approach him boldly. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, uh, the writer there, he reminds us that when Jesus came to the earth, he experienced life in the same way we experience life, right? There's a reason he put on flesh, right? He came here and he experienced rejection and temptation. He felt the pain of loss and hardship. The only difference between Jesus and us is that he encountered all that without sin, And so on a practical level, the writer of Hebrews says that means, number one, that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. Right? Anything you'll ever go through, Jesus went through it first. And he knows what it feels like to face the challenges that you are facing or will face. Number two, it means, as the writer tells us, that we can approach Jesus not in fear, not in doubt, but boldly. And when we approach him boldly, we will find the grace and mercy we need to get through whatever it is we're facing. Listen, that's all this woman did, right? She burst into the home where Jesus was hiding, uninvited, mind you, and she threw herself on the floor at Jesus' feet and she just begged him, You have to help my daughter. The tense of that word begged, by the way, means that she kept on begging. She's there at his feet and she's pleading and pleading and pleading. She had resolved before she ever showed up that she would not take no for an answer. Now, parents in the room, you get this, don't you? Yeah, because anytime your kid is in trouble and they need your help, you're there. It doesn't matter how timid you usually are, how non-confrontational you usually are. When your kid's in trouble, you'll do anything in your power to help them, won't you? I love what Pastor Tim Keller says on this point. He says, there are are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there are what? Yeah, there are parents. This woman was a parent, a a mama bear kind of parent. And so based on who she was and the situation she was dealing with, it makes sense to a lot of us why she would approach Jesus so boldly. But here's the beauty. Jesus says to us, and this is great news even for all the non-parents in the room. Jesus says to us, it doesn't really matter what you're facing and it doesn't matter your circumstance or your situation. I want you to approach me boldly in the same way she did. And my commitment to you is to give you every bit of help you need to get through whatever it is that's challenging you. Now I have to warn you, it's not going to seem like that at first in some cases, Some of you are going to get this, like you run to Jesus and you do so boldly, Jesus, I need your help, but when you get there, you're met with even greater challenges. You ever been there before? That was certainly true in this woman's case. She goes to Jesus with a great boldness, throws herself on the floor, begs him to help, yet greater challenges await her. Let me show you what they were. Number one, she was met with Jesus's silence. This story that we're looking at today, it's also found in Matthew chapter 15, And when you read it there, you find that this woman comes and and as she's begging Jesus to deliver her daughter, Jesus is just sitting there, not responding, stoic almost. It's like he's not even acknowledging the fact that she's in the room. If you've ever been on the wrong side of a one-sided conversation like that, you know how frustrating and defeating it can be, right? Right? I mean, when you're talking to someone about something critically important, your spouse, your boss, your your kids, your friend, and they're not responding to you, but they're just kind of looking at you or looking past you, doesn't it make you feel like they could care less about you and or whatever it is you're talking about? I have to imagine that this woman may have felt the same way in this moment as she was met with silence. Uh, Number two, second challenge was Jesus's disciples. So again, in Matthew's gospel, there she is begging, Jesus isn't responding, and then the disciples in frustration say to Jesus, would you get this woman out of here? Jesus, we came out here to take a vacation, not to deal with needy people like her. And so, Jesus, would you just tell her to get lost? Now, what's so interesting is that Jesus doesn't rebuke his disciples for saying what they said. He doesn't look at them and say, guys, you're a bunch of jerks, like quit being rude, right? Right? That's a selfish thing to say. This woman needs our help. No, instead, it seems at first glance like Jesus almost agrees with them. He says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, uh, to his disciples, mind you, not to the woman, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. With that statement, Jesus was reminding his disciples and he's reminding us that his primary earthly mission was to the Jews, right? His Earthly mission would later include us as Gentile non Jewish people after his death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven. But at this point in his life, while he's walking around on the earth, his primary mission was to the Jewish people. And that goes all the way back to promises that we see in the Old Testament. Right? If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to a man named Abraham that he was going to use him to father a nation of people, the nation of Israel. That that nation would belong to him. He'd be their God. They'd be his people. And that God, through them, he would bless the world. And you know what happens next, right? Those people got it right all throughout the Old Testament. They were awesome. No, the fact is they got it wrong over and over again. They were really dumb, like we are most oftentimes, right? God says, if you obey me, I'll bless you. And if you disobey me, life is going to go really bad for you. And over and over again, what do they do? They disobey. And every time, what does God do? He meets them with grace. Grace is that amazing? If you think the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God, you are sadly mistaken. The God of the Old Testament is abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, and full of grace for his people. They defy him, disobey him, walk away from him, and then they come back and go, God, we're sorry. Our lives are falling apart. Would you take us back? We promise we'll do better. And every time God goes, come on back. Come on back. I have nothing but grace for you. And so they keep coming back and God in his grace gives them more promises. He says to them all throughout the Old Testament, one day I'm going to send a savior into the world and he's going to fix all this mess that exists between us. You're not going to have to go through priests any longer to get to me. You're not going to have to make sacrifices any longer to atone for your sins. I'm going to send a savior and he's going to fix all of it and he's going to restore you back into a right relationship with me. Jesus was that savior. And this is what he acknowledged with that statement. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel I haven't been sent just yet to Gentile people like this woman. The final challenge she faced was Jesus' response. So eventually he stops ignoring and he stops talking to his disciples, and he speaks directly to her. And in verse 27, he seems something that, or he says something that seems really, really harsh at first, almost shocking. Look back at the, at the passage with me, verse 27, "Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread. And throw it to the dogs. Was he just calling that woman a dog in the passage? Uh, Yeah, kind of. So let me explain, all right? Uh, During this time in history, the Jewish people regularly referred to non-Jewish people, Gentiles, as dogs. And that wasn't meant to be a flattering comparison, by the way. Like, I know in our culture today, we love our dogs, right? We call them our kids, and we dress them up, and they sleep in our beds. And it's all really weird, but we do it. In this culture, it was different, They viewed dogs as scavengers because that's what they were. If you've ever been to a third world country and and witnessed mangy, dirty, wild dogs running around, eating trash and hunting other animals, you kind of get the idea. And so you might wonder, well, was Jesus insulting her by saying that? Like, was he agreeing with the cultural mindset of his day and suggesting to her that she was unclean in the same way a dog was unclean? That's a fair question, and it needs an answer, and the simple answer is no, that's not what Jesus was saying. When you study verse 27 further, you find that the word dogs there, it appears in what's called the diminutive form, which I know means absolutely nothing to you, so I'll make it easy, all right? All it means is that the word dogs would be better translated as the word puppies. So Jesus is talking about domesticated pets here. And in using this parable and in speaking this way, Jesus is making this point. He's saying to this woman, look, um, there's an order in how families eat. The children eat first, and then the pets eat afterwards. And it wouldn't be right to take children's food away from them and to throw it onto the floor for the dogs before they've had a chance to eat it. And so he's saying, don't miss it, he's saying, look, in the same way, I've come for Israel first. I've come to reveal to them that I am their savior, the one who God promised them in the Old Testament. And so, lady, I need you to understand, there's an order here. I've been sent to the Jews first, and then later, not now, later to people like you. Now, I'm curious, and I want you to be honest with yourself here. If you were that woman, how do you think you would have responded in that moment, I mean, think about it, there you are, you approach Jesus boldly, knowing you shouldn't have, because you're a Gentile, you're a woman, and your daughter's demon-possessed, and then when you show up, Jesus ignores you, his disciples try to get rid of you, and then he basically tells you, you're not my primary focus right now. I've come for other people first. Do you think you would have left discouraged? Do you think you would have walked out the door just a little defeated? Here's why I ask the question, and I speak from personal experience here. When your faith is challenged in some way, it is so easy, number one, to not approach Jesus at all for help, because the enemy has this way of convincing people like us that God isn't interested in helping people who are going through what we're going through. But number two, it also becomes very easy to wrongly translate what we see as the silence of God or even worse, his lack of care. And so again, the easy thing and the natural thing to do when our faith is being challenged is to what? To stop asking and to stay away, which brings me to point number two. Listen, when you're facing faith challenges in life, and all those challenges tell you that you need to just leave Jesus alone and move on, you wanna know what you do? Here's what you do. You ask Jesus persistently for the help you need. You just keep asking him. I mean, when it came to this woman, what would have been the easy thing for her to do? To get up off the floor and to tell Jesus off, right? Jesus, you're a jerk. I know you could help me if you wanted to, but you're not helping me. And so you're a punk and I'm leaving and walked out. But that's not what she did. What did she do? She sat there on the floor at the feet of Jesus and she just kept begging. Jesus, you have to help my daughter. No, 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 I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying, but you have to help My daughter. Why would she do that? Why would she keep persistently asking Jesus for the help she needed when, on a surface level, it seemed like Jesus wasn't interested in helping? Well, I think the answer is simple. When you pay close attention to the passage, I think it becomes clear that this woman saw her faith challenges as a test. And let me explain what I mean by that. All right, In James chapter 1, James, who was the brother of Jesus, he wrote this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, before we really unpack those verses and talk about how they relate to this story, let me just first say this. When someone's life is falling apart, those are not verses to be thrown around carelessly. Are you tracking with me here? I know that as Christians, we love to put cute little sayings on our T-shirts and our coffee cups and our bumper stickers, and then we'll use those little sayings in in moments where people need like grief counseling, and it's just so unhelpful. If you've ever been through a hard season in life and somebody says, count it all joy, you know like I know all you want to do in that moment is just punch them, right? And Why? Because count it all joy with no further explanation comes across as nothing more than superficial encouragement. So I would say to you, in love, cut it out. Don't do that. It's not helpful. Here's what James was teaching. First, he's telling us that none of us are exempt from faith challenges. Right? It's not if trials come. It's when they come. And when they come, they're going to come in various forms. Sometimes they're going to be emotional, other times relational, sometimes spiritual, sometimes physical. And when they show up, here's the really, really hard part. James says we should count it all joy. Now, let me tell you what he's not saying, okay? James isn't telling us that when we face challenges in life that we should put a smile on and pretend like everything's okay. I need you to know it is okay not to be okay. In fact, until you admit that you're not okay, you'll never get the help you need from God or from anyone else. It's okay to admit you're not okay. Secondly, James isn't telling us to rejoice in the pain we feel when we experience certain challenges in life. Look, it's okay to hurt, and it's okay to grieve, and it's okay to cry, and it's okay to be honest about whatever it is you're feeling. James is telling us to rejoice in this and this alone. Rejoice in the spiritual progress that results from faith challenges. And so let me just make it more simple for you, all right? He's teaching here that at times... God will allow certain challenges to come our way in order to test our faith because God, as crazy as it sounds, in his kindness and goodness is trying to produce something in us, right? Think about it like this. What's the purpose of a test? Students in the room, what's the purpose of a test? It, it serves to show you what you know and to expose what you don't know, Right? And it's only when it's exposed, like what you don't know, that you can actually learn and grow and develop as a student, as a person, as a human being. Well, In the same way, at times, God will allow faith challenges to come our way to test our faith so that what we know can be revealed, what we don't know can be exposed. Again, all because God is trying to produce something in us that James calls steadfastness. This is spiritual stability. This is patience. This is endurance. This is uh, perseverance in the faith that we've been called into. And so God, he's trying to do a work in our life. He's trying to conform us more and more into the image of his son Jesus while teaching us to become more and more dependent upon him. And at times God will test us to pull those things off in our lives. I would argue that this woman understood this. That as she sat there at the feet of Jesus, that she said to herself, and I'm speculating here, this is not in the text, this is James, not the Bible, okay? But I just wonder if, In that moment, she thought to herself, you know what? All these challenges that I'm facing, these are not meant to crush me. They're meant to test me. And how I respond in this moment matters because my response determines whether or not I pass this test. And with that mindset, she says to Jesus in verse 28, this is so incredible. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Do you know what I find so amazing about that? She is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to comprehend one of Jesus' parables. The religious leaders didn't understand them. His own disciples didn't understand them. Yet here she is, a Gentile woman who just understood what Jesus was getting at. And that's seen in the language she uses to respond, right? She basically says to Jesus, Listen, I get it. I'm not a Jew. And I'm not from Israel. And so I understand that I don't have a place at the table just yet. But Jesus, you have to understand that even the puppies get some crumbs every once in a while. That reminds me of my dog at home who loves to hang out under my daughter's high chair while she eats. So that he can eat anything she drops on the floor. That's the imagery. And through the imagery, this woman is saying to Jesus, Jesus, here's the deal. There's enough food on that table to go around. I just need my now. Her persistent faith is what some have called rightless assertiveness. Rightless assertiveness. This is a concept that I would argue our culture has very little concept of. Like we live in a society where people always defend their rights and demand their rights and you know we, we always tell other people, you need to give me what's owed to me because I deserve it. Yes, we see it around us all the time. That's dangerous when it comes to your spiritual relationship with God. As we learned last week In the spiritual world, that's what's called legalism. Legalism is dangerous in that it declares this God, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. God, I've worked hard to clean up my outward behavior. I've worked hard to follow all the rules. I've worked hard to be a moral person. So, God, you owe me. And because you owe me, you need to give me what you owe me because I deserve it. Dangerous, rightless assertiveness, on the other hand, declares this God, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. God, here I am recognizing that you owe me nothing. And so God, I'm not asking you to give me what I'm asking you to give me because I think I deserve it. I'm asking for it because I believe that you're gracious and you can give it. That's what this woman did, right? Rightless assertiveness. She saw her challenges as a test. She acknowledged her condition before Jesus She admitted that there was nothing about her that warranted him helping her. Yet she continued to sit at his feet and plead in desperation all on the basis of his grace and his mercy. And guess what? She passed the test. I love this. Jesus says back to her, hey, for that statement you just made, you can go home. In a good way, right? I mean, Matthew chapter 15 tells us that Jesus actually saw in that moment her great faith. Did you guys just hear what she said? That's great faith right there. You can go ahead and go home. Your daughter's going to be fine. The demon has left her, and she gets home, and there's her daughter, demon, gone, right? That is faith, my friends. Faith is when you take hold of the character and the promises of God, and you refuse to let go until God comes through for you. Not because you're good and deserve it, but because he's good and more than able to accomplish it. Listen, as we get ready to close, what I want to do is take us back to the passage one last time. Uh, I want to read these final few, few verses of Mark 7. Because in these verses, there's a truth that surfaces. It's a truth that I've only just begun to touch on. But this truth reveals why people like you and me can approach Jesus so boldly and ask for his help persistently when faith challenges come our way. So go back to the passage one last time. Verse 31. It says, Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre, and and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed, and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus does what he's done in other places in the book of Mark. He tells them, I don't want you to say anything. He charged them to tell no one. Jesus' plan was to reveal himself in his own time, on his own terms, to the world. That would happen through his death and resurrection, not through miracles like these. And so he says, "Don't, don't tell anybody. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, and this is a throwback to Isaiah 35, by the way. An Old Testament messianic prophecy that spoke of what the Savior of the world would do for people. When he got here, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, did you see all the weird stuff Jesus did, just did to this guy? Again, I don't ever want us to be the church that reads the Bible like it's normal because it's not, Right? Uh, at the very least, it's not normative, I guess I should say. When we read the Bible, we got to be honest about the stuff that we see that's kind of strange to us because it's usually in those things that amazing truths are revealed. What did he do? He stuck his fingers in the guy's ears. He spit and he touched the guy's tongue. It's all strange. Like up until this point in, in the book of Mark, we haven't seen Jesus do anything like that. Every miracle he's performed, he's performed it either by speaking or by simply touching a person. So why all the extra weird stuff? Well, it's really simple. It was all based on what this man needed in the moment. Do you remember who he was? He was deaf and he had a speech impediment. Many scholars believe that the man was mute, that he really couldn't talk at all. And so Jesus is communicating with this man in nonverbal ways here. In other words, he's using sign language. Think about it. He pulls the guy away from the crowd privately. This man had probably been made a spectacle of his entire life. And Jesus decides, I'm not going to make a spectacle of him. And so he pulls him aside and he sticks his fingers in his ears. And then he touches his tongue to communicate to him what he's getting ready to do. And then he looks to heaven so that this man would understand where his power was coming from. And then this gripped me when I first read it. Jesus lets out this sigh, this groan. This outward expression of the pain he felt over this man's broken condition due to sin's presence in the world. Listen, it's in those details that we find the reason why we can approach Jesus boldly and ask him persistently for the help we need. And the reason is this Jesus is good, he's good, and he cares deeply. Think about it, why else would he do what he did? Like Nobody does that stuff. Why else would he stick his fingers in the guy's ears and touch his tongue and then let out a sigh to express his grief over what this man was dealing with? You know why he did it? He did it because he's good. And he cared deeply about the broken condition of that man standing in front of him. And I need you to know today that when it comes to us, those same things are true for Jesus. He is good. And I just wonder, do you believe that today? Do you believe that he is a good God who only does good things for us? No bad things, but only good things. This is a huge question because if you don't believe that, your faith challenges will always be faith challenges in your life. Because unless you believe Jesus is good, you'll never approach him boldly and you'll never ask him for the help you need. I mean, why would you? But not only do you need to believe he's good, you also need to believe that he knows your needs before you ever ask him and that he cares deeply for both you and those needs. Listen, if you doubt that today, I would strongly encourage you to do what I encourage you to do all the time here at Crosspoint, which is this. You look back to the cross of Jesus Christ and you remember what he's done for you. And as you look back, you consider this. If Jesus left heaven 2,000 years ago, came off of his throne, humbled himself, wrapped himself in flesh, came to live among us as a man, not as a king, but as a servant, all for the purpose of living the life none of us could live, a perfect sinless life, only then to go to a cross and to die a death we deserved, then three days later to raise from the dead and to ascend back to heaven where he is right now seated at the right hand of God, praying for us and making himself available to us. If Jesus would do all that in love for us as people, all to meet our greatest need and to overcome our greatest challenge without us ever asking him to do it, Like, why would you ever doubt the love and care of Jesus when lesser needs and lesser challenges come up in your life? Please hear me. Jesus invites you to come to him even when your challenges tell you not to. Jesus invites you to keep asking him over and over and over again for the help you need even when your challenges tell you to shut up and move on. Why? Because he's good and he cares deeply for you. And his commitment to you is this. If you'll just keep coming boldly. And if you'll keep asking in confidence that I can work in your life I'll give you every ounce of help you need to get through whatever challenge it is that you're facing and so here's the invitation today if you're someone in the room whose faith is being challenged in some way approach him boldly and ask for his help and I know some of you are going to argue well James I've already done that Right? do it again and then get up tomorrow and do it again And then get up on Tuesday and ask him again. And then on Wednesday, you just ask him again. And you keep asking him. You take hold of him and his promises to you. And you do not let them go until he comes through for you. But again, you appeal to him, not on the basis of your goodness, but on the basis of his grace and mercy in your life. You keep asking. In just a moment, we're going to have our prayer team down front. And I want to challenge some of you today, those of you who know you need it, to come and receive prayer. Um, I'll say what I say often. We didn't come here to play church, right? We came here to meet with the God of the universe so that he could do things in our lives that only he can do. I believe some of you need to come and allow someone else to pray over your life today. At Crosspoint, we believe there is a great prayer in praying for one another. As I said at the beginning of the message, I believe God wants to set some of you free from the challenges that you're facing. And others of you, I believe he wants to strengthen you so that you can keep persevering and enduring through your challenges. But regardless, I would say to you, come and throw yourself at the feet of Jesus in confidence today and ask him for the help you need. We're going to pray together and then we're going to respond. So let's just bow our heads all across the room. As we settle in, I'm going to invite our prayer team just to come and to get in their places. God, I want to pray for my friends in the room today who are struggling, whose faith is being challenged. God, I believe that there are certain people in this room whose challenges are great and they're major. Would you give them the faith and the courage they need to come to you today? I believe that some of us are here and our challenges are pretty small and minor. God, they're still challenging us. And so God, if that's us, Give us the faith and the courage we need to come and to ask for help today. God, my prayer is this for the next few moments. Would you pour out your spirit in this place? Would you set people free today? Would you strengthen those who need it? God, we are coming to you, not on the basis of anything that we've done, not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of who we know you are and on the basis of what we know you can do. And so God, stir in us greater faith, greater belief today in you and your promises. God, we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our friend.